Chapter 13, Part 2 of The Riddle of the Universe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roland Magyar in Orlando, Florida. The Riddle of the Universe by Ernst Haeckel. Translated by Joseph McCabe. Chapter 13. From this great progress of astronomy and physics, which mutually elucidate and supplement each other, we draw a series of most important conclusions with regard to the constitution and evolution of the cosmos, and the persistence and transformation of substance. Let us put them briefly in the following theses. 1. The extent of the universe is infinite and unbounded. It is empty in no part, but everywhere filled with substance. 2. The duration of the world is equally infinite and unbounded. It has no beginning and no end. It is eternity. 3. Substance is everywhere and always in uninterrupted movement and transformation. Nowhere is there perfect repose and rigidity. Yet the infinite quantity of matter and eternally changing force remains constant. 4. This universal movement of substance in space takes the form of an eternal cycle or of a periodical process of evolution. 5. The phases of this evolution consist in a periodic change of consistency, of which the first outcome is the primary division into mass and ether, the ergonomy of ponderable and imponderable matter. 6. This division is effected by a progressive condensation of matter as the formation of countless infinitesimal centers of condensation, in which the inherent primitive properties of substance, feeling, and inclination are the active causes. 7. While minute and then larger bodies are being formed by this pycnotic process in one part of space, and the intermediate ether increases its strain, the opposite process, the destruction of cosmic bodies by collision, is taking place in another quarter. 8. The immense quantity of heat which is generated in this mechanical process of the collision of swiftly moving bodies represents the new kinetic energy which affects the movement of the resultant nebula and the construction of new rotating bodies. The eternal drama begins afresh. Even our Mother Earth, which was formed of part of the gyrating solar system millions of ages ago, will grow cold and lifeless after the lapse of further millions, and, gradually narrowing its orbit, will fall eventually into the sun. It seems to me that these modern discoveries as to the periodic decay and rebirth of cosmic bodies, which we owe to the most recent advance of physics and astronomy, associated with the law of substance, are especially important in giving us a clear insight into the universal cosmic process of evolution. In their light, our Earth shrinks into the slender proportions of a mote in the sunbeam, of which unnumbered millions chase each other through the vast depths of space. Our own human nature, which exalted itself into an image of God in its anthropistic illusion, sinks to the level of a placental mammal, which has no more value for the universe at large than the ant, the fly of a summer's day, the microscopic infusorium, or the smallest bacillus. Humanity is but a transitory phase of the evolution of an eternal substance, a particular phenomenal form of matter and energy, the true proportion of which we soon perceive when we set it on the background of infinite space and eternal time. Since Kant explained space and time to be merely forms of perception, 
space the form of external time of internal sensitivity there has been a keen controversy which still continues over this important problem a large section of modern metaphysicians have persuaded themselves that this critical fact possesses a great importance as the starting point of a purely idealist theory of knowledge and that consequently the natural opinion of the ordinary healthy mind as to the reality of time and space is swept aside this narrow and ultra-idealist conception of time and space has become a prolific source of error it overlooks the fact that kant only touched one side of the problem the subjective side in that theory and recognized the equal validity of its objective side time and space he said have empirical reality but transcendental ideality our modern monism is quite compatible with this thesis of kant's but not with the one-sided exaggeration of the subjective aspect of the problem the latter leads logically to the absurd idealism that culminates in berkeley's thesis bodies are but ideas their essence is in their perception the thesis should read thus bodies are only ideas for my personal consciousness their existence is just as real as that of my organs of thought the ganglionic cells in the gray bed of my brain which receive the impress of bodies on my sense organs and form those ideas in association of the impressions it is just as easy to doubt or to deny the reality of my own consciousness as to doubt that of time and space in the delirium of fever in hallucinations in dreams and in double consciousness i take ideas to be true which are merely fancies i mistake my own personality for another vide page one eighty five descartes famous cogito ergo sum applies no longer on the other hand the reality of time and space is now fully established by that expansion of our philosophy which we owe to the law of substance and to our monistic cosmogony when we have happily got rid of the untenable idea of empty space there remains as the infinite space-filling medium matter it is two forms of ether and mass so also we find a time-filling event in the internal movement or genetic energy which reveals itself in the uninterrupted evolution of substance in the perpetuum mobile of the universe as a body which has been set in motion continues to move as long as no external agency interferes with it the idea was conceived long ago of constructing an apparatus which should illustrate perpetual motion the fact was overlooked that every movement meets with external impediments and gradually ceases unless a new impetus is given to it from without and a new force is introduced to counteract the impediments thus for instance a pendulum would swing back and forward for an eternity at the same speed if the resistance of the atmosphere and the friction at the point it hangs from did not gradually deprive it of the mechanical kinetic energy of its motion and convert it into heat we have to furnish it with fresh mechanical energy by a spring or as in the pendulum clock by the drag of a weight hence it is impossible to construct a machine that would produce without external aid a surplus of energy by which it could keep itself going every attempt to make such a perpetual mobile must necessarily fail the discovery of the law of substance showed in addition the theoretical impossibility of it the case is different however when we turn to the world at large the boundless universe that is the eternal movement the infinite matter which fills it objectively is what we call space in our subjective impression of it time is our subjective conception of its eternal movement which is objectively a periodic cyclic evolution these two forms of perception teach us the infinity and eternity of the universe that is moreover equal to say that the universe itself is a perpetuum mobile this infinite and eternal machine of the universe sustains itself in an eternal and uninterrupted movement because every impediment is compensated by an equivalence of energy and the unlimited sum of kinetic and potential energy remains always the same 
The law of the persistence of force proves also that the idea of a perpetuum mobile is just as applicable to and as significant for the cosmos as a whole as it is impossible for the isolated action of any part of it hence the theory of entropy is likewise untenable the able founder of the mechanical theory of heat eighteen fifty clausius embodied the momentous contents of this important theory in two theses the first runs the energy of the universe is constant that is one half of our law of substance the principle of energy vid page two thirty the second thesis is the energy of the universe tends toward a maximum in my opinion this second assertion is just as erroneous as the first is true in the theory of clausius the entire energy of the universe is of two kinds one of which heat of the higher degree mechanical electrical chemical energy etc is partly convertible into work but the other is not the latter energy already converted into heat and distributed in the cooler masses is irrevocably lost as far as any further work is concerned clausius calls this unconsumed energy which is no longer available for mechanical work entropy that is force that is directed inward it is continually increasing at the cost of the other half as therefore the mechanical energy of the universe is daily being transformed into heat and this cannot be reconverted into mechanical force the sum of heat and energy in the universe must continually tend to be reduced and dissipated all difference of temperature must ultimately disappear and the completely latent heat must be equally distributed through one inert mass of motionless matter all organic life and movement must cease when this maximum of entropy has been reached that would be a real end of the world if this theory of entropy were true we should have a beginning corresponding to this assumed end of the world a minimum of entropy in which the differences in temperature of the various parts of the cosmos would be at a maximum both ideas are quite untenable in the light of our monistic and consistent theory of the eternal cosmogenic process both contradict the law of substance there is neither beginning nor end of the world the universe is infinite and eternally in motion the conversion of kinetic into potential energy and vicissism goes on uninterruptedly and the sum of this actual and potential energy remains constant the second thesis of the mechanical theory of heat contradicts the first and so must be rejected the representatives of the theory of entropy are quite correct as long as they confine themselves to distinct processes in which under certain conditions the latent heat cannot be reconverted into work thus for instance in the steam engine the heat can only be converted into mechanical work when it passes from a warmer body steam into a cooler water the process cannot be reversed in the world at large however quite other conditions obtain conditions which permit the reconversion of latent heat into mechanical work for instance in the collision of two heavenly bodies which rush towards each other at inconceivable speed enormous quantities of heat are liberated while the pulverized masses are hurled and scattered about space the eternal drama begins afresh the rotating mass the condensation of its parts the formation of new meteorites their combination into larger bodies and so on two monistic geogeny the history of the earth of which we are now going to make a brief survey is only a minute section of the history of the cosmos like the latter it has been the object of philosophic speculation and mythological fantasy for many thousands of years its true scientific study however is much younger it belongs for the most part to the nineteenth century the fact that the earth is a planet revolving round the sun was determined by the system of copernicus fifteen forty three galilei kepler and other great astronomers mathematically determined its distance from the sun the laws of its motion and so forth 
Kant and Laplace indicated in their cosmogony the way in which the earth had been developed from the parent sun. But the later history of the earth, the formation of its crust, the origin of its seas and continents, its mountains and deserts, was rarely made the subject of serious scientific research in the eighteenth century and in the first two decades of the nineteenth as a rule men were satisfied with unreliable conjectures or with the traditional story of creation once more the mosaic legend barred the way to an independent investigation in eighteen twenty two an important work appeared which followed the same method in the scientific investigation of the history of the earth that had already proved the most fertile the ontological method or the principle of actualism it consists in a careful study and manipulation of actual phenomena with a view to the elucidation of the analogous historical processes of the past the society of science at gottingen had offered a prize in eighteen eighteen for the most searching and comprehensive inquiry into the changes of the earth's crust which are historically demonstrable and the application which may be made of a knowledge of them in the investigation of the terrestrial revolutions which lie beyond the range of history this prize was obtained by karl hoff of gotha for his distinguished work history of the natural changes in the crust of the earth in the light of tradition eighteen twenty two to thirty four sir charles lyell then applied this ontological or actualistic method with great success to the whole province of geology his principles of geology eighteen thirty laid the firm foundation on which the fabric of the history of the earth was so happily erected the important geogenetic research of alexander humboldt leopold Buch, gustav bischoff edward cease and other geologists were wholly based on the empirical foundation and the speculative principles of karl hoff and charles lyell they cleared the way for purely rational science in the field of geology they removed the obstacles that had been put in the path by mythological fancy and religious tradition especially by the bible and its legends i have already discussed the merits of lyell and his relations with his friend charles darwin in the sixteenth and seventeenth chapters of my natural history of creation and must refer the reader to the standard works on geology for a further acquaintance with the history of the earth and the great progress which dynamical and historical geology have made during the century the first division of the history of the earth must be a separation of inorganic and organic geogeny the later begins with the first appearance of living things on our planet the earlier section the inorganic history of the earth ran much the same course as that of the other planets of our system they were all cast off as rings of nebula at the equator of the rotating solar mass and gradually condensed into the independent bodies after cooling down a little the glowing ball of the earth was formed out of the gaseous mass and eventually as the heat continued to radiate out into space there was formed at its surface the thin solid crust on which we live when the temperature at the surface had gone down to a certain point the water descended upon it from the environing clouds of steam and thus the first condition was secured for the rise of organic life many million years certainly more than a hundred have passed since this important process of the formation of water took place introducing the third section of cosmogony which we call biogeny three monistic biogeny the third phase of the evolution of the world opens with the advent of organisms on our planet and continues uninterrupted from that point until the present day the great problems which this most interesting part of the earth's history suggests to us were still thought insoluble at the beginning of the nineteenth century or at least so difficult that their solution seemed to be extremely remote now at the close of the century we can affirm with a legitimate pride that they have been substantially solved by modern biology and its theory of transformism indeed many of the phenomena of the organic world are now interpreted on physical principles as completely as the familiar physical phenomena of inorganic nature 
the merit of making the first important step in this difficult path and of pointing out the way to the monistic solution of all the problems of biology must be accorded to the great french scientist jean lamarck it was in eighteen o nine the year of the birth of charles darwin that he published his famous philosophie zoologique in this original work not only is a splendid effort made to interpret all the phenomena of organic life from a monistic and physical point of view but the path is open which alone leads to the solution of the greatest enigma of this branch of science the problem of the natural origin of organic species lamarck who had an equally extensive empirical acquaintance with zoology and botany drew the first sketch of the theory of descent he showed that all the countless members of the plant and animal kingdoms have arisen by slow transformation from simple common ancestral types and that it is the gradual modification of forms by adaptation in reciprocal action with heredity which has brought about this secular metamorphosis i have fully appreciated the merit of lamarck in the fifth chapter and of darwin in the sixth and seventh chapters of the natural history of creation darwin fifty years afterwards not only gave a solid foundation to all the essential parts of the theory of descent but he filled up the lacunae of lamarck's work by his theory of selection darwin reaped abundantly the success of lamarck had never seen with all his merit his epic-making work on the origin of species by natural selection has transformed modern biology from its very foundations in the course of the last forty years and has raised it to a stage of development that yields to no other science in existence darwin is the copernicus of the organic world as i said in eighteen sixty eight and e du bois Raymond repeated fifteen years afterwards compare monism by ernst Haeckel. four monistic anthropogeny the fourth and last phase of the world's history must be for us men that latest period of time which has witnessed the development of our own race lamarck eighteen o nine had already recognized that this evolution is only rationally conceivable as the outcome of a natural process by descent from the apes our next of kin among the mammals huxley then proved in his famous essay on the place of man in nature that this momentous thesis is an inevitable consequence of the theory of descent and is thoroughly established by the facts of anatomy embryology and paleontology he considered this question of all questions to be substantially answered darwin followed with a brilliant discussion of the question under many aspects in his descent of man eighteen seventy one i had myself devoted a special chapter to this important problem of the science of evolution in my general morphology eighteen sixty six in eighteen seventy four i published my anthropogeny which contains the first attempt to trace the descent of man through the entire chain of his ancestry right up to the earliest archegonia monera the attempt was based equally on the three great documents of evolutionary science anatomy embryology and paleontology the progress we have made in anthropogenetic research during the last few years is described in the paper which i read on our present knowledge of the origin of man at the international congress of zoologists in cambridge in eighteen ninety eight the last link translated by dr Godow. end of chapter thirteen part two